This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start, this week's episode includes swearing and some references to sexual assault. Russell Brand has dominated headlines all week. These allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. As I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual. In a series of news articles and a documentary published by the Sunday Times and Channel 4's Dispatches, four women from the US and UK made a range of allegations, including rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse against Russell Brand when he was at the peak of his fame between 2006 and 2013. It's really been grim the last few days listening to what these women allege they went through. And it's really made me wonder, what was the culture of the noughties? You're listening to Pop Culture with me, Shante Joseph for The Guardian. Since the story broke, Russell Brand's live tour has been postponed, the BBC and Channel 4 have taken down their shows that include him, and even more significantly, YouTube has suspended his popular channel from making any advertising money. So how did we end up here? I I think I'm horrified by some of the stories that have come forward and also slightly depressed that once again we're on a cycle of bad media man does alleged bad things to women and it it feels that this is a sort of almost endless cycle and there's a lot more to come. Jim Mortison is The Guardian's media editor and as you can hear has been writing about the story this week. Why did this not happen in the Me Too period? These stories are so hard to tell. This one we're talking about came about because three different outlets who had been working on it separately decided to combine their resources One of those outlets said they'd been looking into it since 2019. I know of other newspapers, of other broadcasters who also tried to look into allegations against Russell Brand and never got to the point where you can publish. I've worked on Me Too style stories Mm. and I've worked on ones that we've never published because I've just never got to the point where we've been able to satisfactorily meet the legal standards to get it out there because it's so hard. Mm. And people often talk about super injunctions because they sort of vaguely remember the word super injunction from uh, 2010. It's Mm. rarely super injunctions that are the problem. It's normally just old-fashioned libel law, under British law in particular, 
you've got to absolutely have everything nailed down. You've got to have the receipts. You've got to be so confident. And even then, you might be tied up in years of expensive legal wrangling after publication. So mm. the challenge is not so much that everyone's heard that someone is allegedly a wrong It's getting to the point where you can really put hard allegations out mm. there. I mean, some of the people who worked on the Channel 4 element of this, I mean, I know of people who've literally retrained and started new careers that were on this project early on. I mean, oh it's, it's been going on for that long that, you know, people who were working on this two or three years ago who've even left the industry. So... Russell Brand, he's a comedian, and he really rose to fame in the 2000s. So could you give us a sense of what that time was like? It was, I think one of the weirdest things that's happening is this massive reappraisal, which had just started already, and then Russell Brand has really pushed it to the fore, of what it what the 2000s were like. I mean, I was a teenager then, and a culture that was really weird. It was like the dying days of old tabloids that mm. were still selling. You know, the Sun was still selling four or five million copies a day uh, in print. You know, you had sort of Piers Morgan running the Mirror, which was competing with the Sun. You had Big Brother and reality TV at its peak. You had heat sort of circling people's cellulite in pictures. And there was a sort of sleazy overtone to it all, which was like, if you're not in on the joke, you know, where's your sense of fun? Mm. You just have to look at the music that was around at the time. It was the real sort of time of like the Libertines. Pete Doherty and that whole enemy-driven scene. There was not a woman in sight. You were sort of always shaped a bit by the media of your teenage years. And I do feel quite weird looking back on the jokes that you sort of laughed at even nervously at the time for fear of looking like you didn't, you weren't in on the fun. And actually the most shocking bit of that Dispatches documentary, aside from the horrendous testimony of the women, was actually the jokes that Russell Brand was broadcasting on TV Mm -hmm. to millions of people about sexual activity that was very much, in my eyes, borderline abusive, just as part of his comedy routine. What about, I like it, if you, if you are a fella, and you do know you do have, you know, a dinkle, etc. It is quite nice. Them blowjobs, what you get sometimes, never suggest it, if, you know, if the girl does it, they ain't suggested it. I like them blowjobs, right, where it goes in their neck a little bit. I would never suggest it. I would suggest it. Suggested it, it's the other idea. Then blowjobs where it goes, uh, 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 that noise. Uh, uh. Nice. Uh, uh. I wouldn't suggest it. Be wrong to suggest it. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> then then blowjobs where mascara runs a little bit. Uh, uh. And it was clearly considered what the public wanted at that point. One of the things that really stood out to me this week was something written in The Guardian by Zoe Williams. She talks about the culture of the noughties and she recalls a story about, you know, Emma Watson and how paparazzi waited outside her 18th birthday party to get photos up her skirt. How did we get to a point where this was acceptable behaviour? She talks about the weirdness of how a sort of humorous sort of laddishness of the 90s morphed into a quite like sexist and outright misogynistic noughties. Um, before maybe correcting itself a bit in the 2010s. It's simplistic to sort of view these things in neat decades. Um, Mm. It's this sort of, you know, journalist and historian's trick to split things up like that. But there's definitely 
a shift that happened. I mean, in Lads Mags, for instance, you went from sort of FHM, which mixed provocative shoots with some film star with a, a, a thing about driving around the world on a motorbike. And then you switched into sort of the Nuts and Zoo magazines, which were basically just like soft porn on a, on a newsstand. Women, don't expect any help on a Tuesday. Nuts about women, motors, sport, read nuts. Yeah, Russell Brand, he was venerated for doing some of the things that he's now being criticised for. You read newspaper articles from only 15 years ago and they'd all be full of sort of, you know, he's been seen canoodling. God, what that, what's that guy going to get up to next? That crazy Russell. There's another one with uh, Noel Fielding uh, was reported in, in an article that's still online, you know, star of the mighty Boosh, now sort of middle England, great British bake-off to be uh, snogging a 16-year-old when he was 33. And obviously, there's nothing illegal about that. But, you know, nowadays, we might raise a few eyebrows about the dynamics at play there. When I think about your comment on Russell Brand kind of being celebrated during that time in, in, in media, in the documentary, there are bits of his stand-up where he's saying some outrageous things, but people are laughing. Say this. <laughs> it is my humble view that there ain't a single sexual act from the humble wank right up to the sexual apotheoses that is bumming <laughs> that ain't enhanced by spitting. <laughs> There's literally no joke there. That is just a sex tip. <laughs> just want this gig to have a bit of take-home value, really. It's my dear wish that someone here tonight will go home and the domestic darkness of their conjugal lives will be punctured by this sound. <laughs> so as viewers, I guess we were sort of complicit in his rise because whenever he was on a show or got his own show, the viewing figures were insane. He was everywhere. I mean, he had the best-selling book at Christmas. He had spin-off reality shows. He, uh, he wrote columns on football for The Guardian and The Guardian even published bits of his book. You know, he was a sort of seen as a sort of a proper A-list celeb in the UK. And then he went to Hollywood and became globally famous in films and as the husband of Katy Perry. And so that, you know, he he really was a global star. Christopher Biggins and Graham Norton complimenting me on my ring. <laughs> Do you really remember much of him being a star? I didn't really fully understand, I guess, A, his cultural impact, and like B, what made him such a star. Because I never really found him particularly funny. It was like, oh, this guy with like wispy hair is always yelling. Like that was kind of how I, I saw him. Well, it was all that sort of, it came out of that sort of zoo TV kind of craziness. The weirdest one in retrospect was this sort of now lost to ancient history story about when he was presenting a Radio 2 show. And he left a load of messages on Andrew Sachs, an elderly actor who'd been in Faulty Towers, about sleeping with his granddaughter, singing songs. Now, when you were he doing... fucked a granddaughter! <laughs> At the time, the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday were the ones who led the way on this. And they, they basically... No one had complained when it was originally broadcast. And then a week later, they started a campaign to say how gross this was. And it ended up in BBC executives resigning and Russell Brand losing his show. And at the time, there was definitely a lot on the sorts of liberal left who went, oh my God, it's just Puritanism from the mail. Marina Hyde's written about this for The Guardian and how 
she thought at the time it was slightly overplayed in a way to bash the BBC and that she didn't really think of the effect on the woman at the heart of this who basically found her life turned upside down because her granddad had to hear a guy that she'd had a brief fling with chanting about it on an answer phone and then it become a national news story. It's it's not just as simple as the good guys kind of got this at the time and the bad guys didn't. It's a kind of messy thing of what is countercultural and what's just being unpleasant. Mm. I mean, you're going to be reading a lot in the next few weeks as everyone sort of processes what was that naughty's culture all about and what did it reward? Yeah. And I'm interested in understanding how things shifted because it kind of felt like things were quite cheeky and funny. And then it started to become something that was a bit more sort of vicious and at the expense of women. And and is there a moment where that started to change? I kind of feel that social media coming along and moments going viral out of context. And, you know, a lot of the early 2010s was before any term like cancel culture came around. But there was a lot of like calling out comedians over jokes. You know, Frankie Boyle got in a lot of trouble for jokes about disability. I have a theory that Jordan married a cage fighter because she needed someone strong enough to stop Harvey from fucking her. And again, there was a sort of weird thing of like, are we giving in, for want of a better shorthand, left liberals going, you know, does he need defending from reactionary forces who are out to get him? Or is actually just that a really unpleasant joke? There was, there was a lot of reckoning, you know, early days of Twitter, early days of Facebook, people signing petitions and sort of groups suddenly finding a voice and things that would have been some things that we take for granted now as fair game will end up being not considered acceptable in the future. And that was the era where Russell Brand was everywhere. He was everywhere. And if you were the star of the moment in the UK, you could do what you want, really, to a certain extent. The broader issue is that Russell Brand would happily talk about, you know, just how hypersexual he was and exactly what he'd like to do to everyone in plain sight. And, you know, the response was more quiet words to female staff on the sets rather Mm. than, hey, HR really need to keep an eye on this guy. This is a risk. Yeah. Um, It was more like, he's the talent. Let's work around him rather than, Whoa, this is still a workplace, even if you are an A-lister. Let's take a minute. And if you're finding today's show interesting, then subscribe and leave a review. And when we come back, we'll have more from Jim. Hello, I'm Grace Bent. I'm back and I've been busy. My new book, Comfort Eating, which is based on our award-winning podcast, is out now. You can get hold of it at guardianbookshop.com. And from Tuesday, the podcast is returning for its next season with an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to join me on Book Tour, I'll be in London on the 9th of October and in Manchester on the 11th, talking about my go-to comfort foods and a lot more. Get your tickets today from membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back, friends. Okay, so Jim, we've been talking about Russell Brand and how the 2010 signaled a bit of a change in the culture. And, you know, that was also a time when he moved away from the so-called mainstream and onto his social media platforms. Can you talk me through how he seemed to go from being a left-wing political activist to where he's ended up now? He was partly enabled by outlets that wanted him to sort of be a voice of, you know, if you think it was the coalition years, New Labour was sort of seen as a dead project. There was nothing really on the left that was sort of youthful and enthusiastic. And he had the sort of seeds of a, a new audience. So a lot of people were, were flocking to that in the hope that he could somehow sort of awaken the youth votes and things like that. You literally had Ed Miliband, the Labour leader, dashing late at night during a general election to record a video with him at Brand's house in East London. Since suffrage, since the right of women to vote, what has meaningfully occurred? That's totally wrong. Go on, mate. Well, look, workers' rights, the National Health Service, a minimum wage. This guy who wants to be prime minister in a few weeks is sitting in Russell Brand's flat arguing with a guy who isn't even registered to vote. (laughs) I'm going to try and say this carefully, but a lot of his critiques of corporate-owned media have a point. And as ever with the best storytellers, you know, he really understands the media. It is not crazy to say that you can be worried about the way that big media corporations work in hock with other vested interests, the closeness between the government and a lot of the British newspaper industry. These are all real things. Mm. At that point, he was sort of the, the guy with a platform who point them out. And he guest edited the New Statesman. He, he would occasionally write pieces for The Guardian. He went in front of Parliament and, and made jokes. Or, mm. oh, he went on Question Time and wouldn't shut up. <laughs> He's sort of subverting the system. Ha, 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 ha. And then he realized that that's maybe a new route for him. And that became his main thing. Mm. And he retreated from doing mainstream comedy. And just slowly over time, what happened is it went from being a kind of leftist critique to a more conspiratorial critique to particularly during covid embracing uh vaccine skepticism and then drifting sort of into the american far right that latched itself into that if you look at his content now i mean he's described as a wellness guru but his youtube channel is full of davos and the world economic forum are coming to take over your lives conversations held at davos confirm that corporations are truly now more powerful than elected governments as always, it's the I'm just asking questions kind of element to it all. The problem is that the overall message is one that leads you to a place which is in line with that conspiratorial strand of thinking which dominates a certain section, particularly of the American far right. The extent to which the platforms like YouTube allow conspiratorial content to be shared and monetized, and monetizes the key bit, Um, makes it possible for people like him to build a career and it incentivizes them to go further and further down a rabbit hole. 
A 10-year study into the effects of ageing has discovered that friendship can be more important than family in sustaining a long and happy life, yet we're lonelier than ever. I mean, he's really good at doing those videos. They are, like, well-produced. He, he keeps your attention. He's grabby because he just spews words at 100 miles an hour. Like, the guy is a media pro. He knows what he's I doing. delegate friendship somewhat. I know some people. My wife, for example, she's got amazing friendships. She's got a group of friends. But as of this week, he can no longer make any money from his YouTube videos because they've suspended his ability to monetize them because of these allegations. Yeah. And that'll be a major hit to him. What does that mean for him now? Because I think it was easy to shun the media, the mainstream media, because, you know, well, they're not paying my bills anyway. But now the place that is paying his bills is no longer doing that. He's on a site called Rumble, which is sort of like a parallel YouTube that is popular with conservatives and right wing figures who've been, for want of a better term, cancelled elsewhere and yeah. still want to monetize their output. He'll possibly be able to survive this by playing the I've been cancelled, I'm getting closer and closer to the truth, which is why these forces are coming for me, mm. argument. He calls his followers, you know, my awakened fans. <laughs> and it's interesting that you mention his fandom because I kind of see a lot of similarities between his situation and kind of other high-profile men that have been accused of things like sexual assault. And I think what happens in the media is so different to what plays out online. And so do you think that how this has unfolded on X, formerly known as Twitter, and other kind of online platforms, what does it tell us about how people interact or feel about huge online personalities? I used to be a politics reporter, and, and almost everything about politics during the 2010s when social media took off, it turned to being sort of like cheering on your favorite, like demanding that, insisting that they were right on every single point, that they were infallible, that they had the answer to everything. It became basically like you pick your side, mm. you stay in that lane and you cheer for your character. It's like supporting a football team. You know, you, you know, you hate it when that player does a bad tackle on your team, but when your guy gets away with it, you sort of wink and you know that you... Uh, that's funny, can't believe we got away with that, but and while insisting that it was perfectly legitimate. I, I think with a lot of brands fans, it's, it's, it's really fun to sort of be part of a community and to feel that you've got the answers and others haven't, mm. and then to sort of press back on others who you feel are being idiots and don't get the joy or the belief that you've got. I really do think that fandoms explain a lot of modern culture and a lot of modern politics and a lot of how we end up where we are if you look at sort of the people who are going on uh, anti-lockdown protests i think for a lot of people it's just a community when they really were feeling alone and they really wanted to hang out with other people yeah and it was quite nice to sort of be part of a movement if you've invested a lot of time and there's this term parasocial which is used a lot by people who write about the internet the idea that you know when you follow someone every day on social media even if you've never met them, you really feel like they're your friend, that you understand their life. You maybe see pics of their kids. They feel like a friend. Mm. And to invest that much time and energy in someone and then to have someone come along and tell you that they're a bad person, well, that's really hard to take. Yeah. It's stan culture, basically. That's just stan culture. Crazy. There you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the, the Gen Z take <laughs> on my, my, my fandom. And even on this point of stands, like one thing about this situation with uh, Brand is that it reminds me a lot about how the fans really came out for Johnny Depp and the way people online on TikTok, particularly that became a huge source of 
misinformation around the case. It feels like, yes, like, you know, these publications and these huge broadcasters can come together and have this, like, fact-checked um, allegations in their document, but it's not necessarily enough to win the, like, win over everyone. And it's not enough to get people online to, to fully believe it. It just feels like there's a whole different conversation happening on the internet. Because Russell Brown put out a video preemptively saying, I deny all the unspecified allegations you're about to read. Uh, you had people coming out in support of him saying, I believe Russell, before they even knew what, what they were believing him over. Uh, you have to ask why this is coming out now before they even knew what was coming out. And in the same way, it's dangerous to just go, well, a newspaper published it. It must be absolutely true. It's equally crazy to go, well, a newspaper published it. It must be absolutely false. Mm. People instinctively almost instinctively knew in themselves whether they were going to believe the thing they were about to read mm. before it was even put out there. As with everything in the media, it's a bit of a mess now, isn't it? Looking back at this whole story, how does it make you feel? I guess just it's, it's really weird to think about how sleazy and odd the 2000s were in retrospect. It was all in plain sight. Mm. And now I think a lot of it goes on, but it, it, it's maybe done more subtly and quieter. And, you know, Me Too has left a lot of men sweating who were big in that era. And a lot of them will be sweating even more now that these Russell Brand allegations have come out because there's more to come. This isn't the end of this. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, there is help available. In England and Wales, Rape Crisis offers support on 0808-802-9999. In Scotland, 0808-801-0302. And in Northern Ireland, 0800-0246-991. You can also contact The Samaritans on 116-123 or by emailing joe at thesamaritans.org. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I know it was a heavy one, so be kind to yourselves today. This week's episode was produced by Hattie Moya, sound design by Malaseto, original music by Axel Kakute, and the executive producers are Maz Ertaj and Nicole Jackson. See you next Thursday, guys. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.